Hello and welcome to episode 54 of Lime Ninja Radio. I say that like I'm surprised. <laughs> I am a bit. Yep. Episode number 54. We're cruising right along here. But before we get too deep in, we promised that we'd have updates from Logan from the road, and we've got one. So let's pause right here and hear from Logan on his trek for truth. Hi, McKay. It's Logan from the uh, Trek for Truth out here in Gunnison, Colorado today. Um, it's Monday, the uh, 31st of August, and uh, I am about 1,572 miles into the bike leg of this adventure, um, about 2,700 miles into the overall from the Atlantic Ocean, and uh, enjoying Colorado, although very challenged by the climbs. Did uh, Monarch Pass yesterday, and couple days before that, another 4,500-foot climb, and uh, 12- and 15-mile climbs are unheard of in the eastern U.S., so it's kind of a shock to my system. But uh, the descents sure are fun. But uh, my body's hanging in there fairly well um, for a 55-year-old former chronic illness patient with still a few few, uh, aches and pains here and there, heading to Montrose today and uh, hope to reach Dolores, Colorado by Wednesday, and then within another day, uh, I'll be crossing into Utah. So my next update will uh, will have me in Utah, and then I have Nevada and California. And just to give your listeners an update, we are targeting tentatively right now, Saturday, October 3rd, to reach San Francisco and uh, touch the Pacific Ocean and uh, bring this stage of this adventure to a conclusion. Although the work and the message uh, will will continue, just probably in a different format. Anyway, thanks so much for uh, for keeping up with us. And um, Viet Animo, strength and courage, heart and soul. Thanks, McKay. Bye. That's so cool. I love hearing from Logan and what he's doing out there. And it's just such an incredible physical feat, even for somebody who's 100% healthy, let alone somebody who's recovering from Lyme disease. Yeah. So cool. And if you just stopped in to hear Logan, why don't you stick around and for this interview with Lena Prisco? It's really fascinating conversation about the state of the art and what's going on with the different tests and testing technology. And it's a great interview. I'm sure you're going to love it. And, Roy, why don't you tell us a little bit about Dr. Prisco? Okay. Lena Prisco moved to Martha's Vineyard with her partner Arlene in 2007. At first, she continued to work as vice president for the pharmaceutical company Parallax, but soon took a job closer to home as a lab technician at the Martha's Vineyard Hospital. In 2011, Lena became the hospital's lab director, where she took steps to bring Lyme disease testing in-house. In 2011, the lab did 301,580 tests. Since then, she's expanded the lab to better serve physicians and the people who live on Martha's Vineyard. Last year, she co-founded the Vineyard Center for Clinical Research, which aims to improve Lyme disease diagnosis. She also works on expanding the Lyme disease research infrastructure through data collection trials and urging people to report their cases of Lyme to the CDC. Thanks, Rora. And here's our interview with Lena Prisco. Are you ready to go? 
Yep. So what would you like to talk about today? <laughs> Everything Lyme and especially testing since you're the expert. Oh, really? <laughs> what Com- can I tell you compa- about testing? Compared to 99% of people out there, yes, you are. Well, mm. f- first, t- why don't you just introduce yourself and mm-hmm. you're the – what's your official title there at the center? Um, actually, I'm the chief operating officer and the principal investigator. Oh, very cool. And when I first contacted you, we talked about the study that you're doing out there, and I got sidetracked right. with the testing part. So let's start there. Let's talk about why, first of all, why a study out at Martha's Vineyard? How did you get interested in Lyme disease, and how's it going? Okay, so I'm actually going to start with the second question uh, first. Um, one of the reasons um, I became interested in Lyme disease is because there's a pretty high incidence and prevalence here on the island. Uh, CDC is now finally realizing that what they're estimating, there's probably close to, what, a couple hundred thousand cases a year. Yeah, the official's, uh, what, 330 or something? Yeah, something like that. Um, And we see just in our tiny little physician's office probably 30 or 40, especially this time of the year, 30 or 40 cases a week. Wow. So, you know, it's very, very prevalent here on the island. And there are lots of reasons. People spend a lot of time outdoors. It's very wooded. There's no spraying, et cetera. Um, I became involved when um, my wife and I first moved here about seven or eight years ago um, when I met uh, Dr. Loberg uh, and became involved on the education committee for uh, tick and other Lyme-borne uh, and Lyme disease. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so that's how it started. And then when I realized that, you know, education is really the key, if we could get to people sooner, we would have to worry less about dealing with infections that, if they go untreated or undetected, can be quite uh, debilitating. Yeah, it's brutal, isn't it? Yeah, it is pretty brutal. And the second thing, as a laboratory scientist and, uh, you know, having uh, done some clinical research, we're all aware of the current limitations of the testing that we have. So it's not the methods that are the problem. Mm-hmm. It's how we're trying to measure what's going on. So current tests for a Lyme measure an antibody response right. to being bit by the tick, right? Mm-hmm. Well, because it's an antibody response, yours is different than mine, which is different than the guy down the street, which is different than the guy next door. So. Mm-hmm. You know, you're trying to measure a response in a certain window that has a lot of variability in it. So there's a lot of inherent uh, pitfalls in trying to do that. So the idea would be, wouldn't it be good if we could detect the actual spirochete like you can with other uh, tick-borne disease in the blood? For whatever reason, the spirochete, uh, for Lyme cannot be directly detected in a person's blood. And do you think that's because it changes forms or sheds its cell wall, or do you have any I guess? Think what happens is, is um, actually, if you think about it, humans are not their natural host, so they, they infect 
causes a, an inflammatory response, and then they die. And what people see as Lyme disease is the inflammatory response. So there's, they don't ever rise to the level of detection within the blood. So it's not like malaria where we can see it on a slide or uh, a babesiosis where we can actually see it, the parasite growing within. Within the blood cell, uh, right? Right. And Lyme spirochetes, for whatever reason, are also very difficult to grow in culture because right. we're also trying to do that at the center as well. And they're pretty tough to grow, even in people who have a frank... Uh, Lyme reaction. They have the rash, they're sick, we draw their blood and try to grow it out of their plasma. It's, it's a pretty finicky bug. So that takes time. So the current testing is actually looking, trying to look at what is causing those reactions. So when we talk about uh, an antibody response, in order to get that response, certain cell types within your blood are activated, and they're called T cells and B cells. Mm -hmm. And uh, T cells and B cells are activated in any insult that you see, right? So they are the two types of lymphocytes that provide immunity. Um, and it's curious that um, people don't have immunity once they've been bitten and infected by Lyme. For whatever reason, dogs do, but humans don't. So, so then, can so let's, uh, can we pause there for a second? So this is kind of blowing my mind a little bit because I'm thinking, <laughs> you're making me think in a new way. So, so okay. if, if we don't have immunity, we, we have antibodies, but not immunity. That's a different thing. Correct. In okay. this case, a different thing. Is that because the body doesn't persistently or consistently produce these antibodies? Right. Is that Once what the difference there, is? Well, you know, there's a lot of speculation about that, but the difference, what they feel Lyme disease is, is not really the presence of antibodies. That shows that you were infected at some point. Okay. What the spirochete does is sets off this pretty... Um, virulent and aggressive chain reaction of immune responses. So it's like taking uh, arthritis and putting it on steroids. Okay. So it just really blows up your immune response. So you respond very strongly to the... And yet other people don't. So, um, you know, it's a very... Some people can take, you know, the, the course of doxycycline and be fine. Other people will need to take two courses before they feel fine. So it's, it's, it's really a pretty uh, early stage in the diagnosis process. Uh, so obviously, you know, somebody comes in and they've got the, you know, the typical rash. They go, oh, all right, I know what it is and I treat them. But what if they don't? Yeah. You know, here on the island, although the CDC will tell you, oh, 70% of people have a rash. No, that's 70% of the data that they've collected, the people have had a rash. <laughs> exactly, right? Um, here on the island, it's actually the reverse. We only see maybe a third of people who have a rash. Most people come in with all hosts of other symptoms. They're tired, they're fatigued, they think they've been bitten, uh, they have headaches. They ache all over. They'll have one or two joints that are swollen, uh, but they may never have either seen the rash or they walk in and they don't have a rash. So how does your clinic 
diagnose? So we use a host of symptoms. Uh, and, you know, basically if they have a rash, okay, it's game over, they have it. Right. Um, we also do uh, Lyme serology where we look individually for the two types of antibodies that are formed so that we can get a better response that's closer uh, to the Western blot than is available before. Okay. Um, so and it's is, symptoms, and is that And is that... Excuse me, is that test a Western blot or is that an ELISA? That is the ELISA. Okay. Now, the problem that a lot of people and the confusion that comes with Western blot is everyone thinks that's a better test than the ELISA. It's It's not. It's just different, right? What it does, what the Western blot does is tells you exactly what antibodies you picked up in the ELISA. So if there are no antibodies in the ELISA, you're not going to pick anything up in the Western blot. Okay. So, so they are the, companion the, tests. The ELISA is binary, yes, no, and then the Western block says you've got these these bands. This one, this one, this one, this yeah. one, this one, okay. that one. Correct. Okay. And let's and while we're on this topic for a second, the there the process of the test is slightly different. Also, the ELISA is an enzyme test, and the Western blot they break down the antibody somehow. Am I right or half right or mostly wrong? <laughs> so antibodies are proteins. Yep. So an ELISA links those antibodies. It's called an enzyme-linked immunosorbent assay. So you have. Sometimes it's beads, sometimes it's other types of reagents where they have specific Lyme antigens, uh, enzymes linked to them. And if it's in the patient's serum, it gets linked to it and it sends a signal, yes, it's there. Okay. A West blot actually uses impregnated either strips or electricity. The newer way to do it is through impregnated strips with all of the known Lyme antigens that we know we have, and you allow the patient's serum to incubate with those strips, and if they come up positive with you know with actual lines in it saying it's there, it tells you which antibodies are there. Okay, and is that what you do something similar at the clinic? Is that what you're doing there and with the yes. study? Okay. And you're, and you're using two different strains? We use, so in terms of Western blots, uh, the kits that uh, come provided actually have up to the known 48 antigens for Lyme. So we look at quite a few antigens. Oh, very cool. All now, the research is different. The right. research that we're involved in is trying to take these diagnostic tests a more sensitive level. So what they're doing is backing up where we look. Instead of waiting for the antibody response to come up, which in some people, for you to create an antibody response to be picked up in ELISA, it can take three days, it can take 10 days, it can take two weeks right. before your body produces those antibodies. Yep. One of the tests, one of the uh, trials we're involved with is actually looking at the reactivity of the cells, those T cells and B cells that produce the antibody. Mm-hmm. So they actually take the patient's blood and put a spirochete in it ah. and see what happens. 
if that patient has been exposed to Lyme before, the reaction is immediate because it's seen it before. Okay. If it has not, it takes a the while. reaction is negative. Uh, or doesn't react at all. Now, so right. So here's back to your early comments. How do they keep those spirochetes alive? So they yeah. can test them. <laughs> I'm curious. Yeah, well, they, they're growing them faster than I'm growing them. I mean, they uh, have a way to do it. Okay. They also um, have a way of using, uh, taking those T cells and B cells, and they're already what we call primed. Yep. So they've seen the spirochete before. Yep. So they know, they recognize it. Yeah. So if you take a patient who's had who you think has Lyme disease and throw them in with the actual T cell and B cell, if they've seen it before, those cells will start to produce antibodies. So and here's another question for you, and there may not be an answer, I don't, or there may be one. So do, is the logic or the intelligence of the T cells and B cells fuzzy enough so if they've been exposed to a different strain of Borrelia, will they still mm-hmm. react? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, cool. That sounds like a pretty good test. Yeah, so there, you know, it's in development. We're working with a company that is trying to um, submit this to the FDA. So we're trying to get them as many patients as we can, so okay. they have enough data to do yeah. that submission, so they can make the kit clinically available for everybody. So let's. Can we also pause there? So I know this is not an easy thing to get a new test out there and available. No. <laughs> what mm-hmm. are the what are the steps that and they don't you don't have to get into the great detail but like is this a 10 year process a 5 year process and, Oh no, much shorter than you know we normally think of a drug approval process because you don't have to do this in humans, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, when you develop when you're developing a clinical diagnostic test it's really to show that you can distinguish from people who have the disease and people who don't have the disease. So not only do we send samples that are, we pair them. So we, when we uh, draw somebody we know has a rash and clearly has Lyme disease, we will also send blood over for someone we know who doesn't have it mm-hmm. so that they can uh, compare and, and definitively show that the actual reactions that they're seeing, you know, for lack of a better expression, in the tubes are real. Right. So they do tons and tons and tons and thousands of samples. Um, and so the trajectory for that is maybe a couple of years, two, three years. Okay. And where where is this test in the process now? It's actually being, it's been, they started last year. They're in the process of collecting all the samples and stuff this year. I imagine they'll... Uh, have enough to do some of the data extraction the year next year in 2016. So I would, it's probably 217. You'll probably see it. So for this, hopefully for the spring of tick season 217. Nice. Coming to a lab near you. (laughs) Right. And actually it's being uh, developed by Oxford Immunitech, which is actually in England and out of Boston. No kidding. Yeah, which is nice. Are they headquartered in the uk or in u.s they're headquartered in the uk but they also have like i said a satellite headquarters in uh, cambridge huh so that's that's interesting mm-hmm. that a uk company is 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 driving this now well they originally what they did was they have the technology um that we call t-spot technology that we now use to uh detect 
uh, tuberculosis. So okay. they have this, they've taken this technology and adapted it to, to this testing. Yeah, very cool. Okay. Huge implications because you can use it for any number of things, yeah, right? Yeah, cl- clearly. Clearly. Now, I had a, some questions from some of my listeners, and one of them was, what other tests should they mm-hmm. run if they've been infected by Lyme? It's like, you know, should they be looking for the co- what specific co-infections? Are there viruses that show up in again and again? Do you have any right. of that so kind of information? See, right. So um, here on the island, the other thing, if, you know, if they're not really sure whether it's Lyme or not, they should actually ask for what's called a tick-borne disease panel. Because we also have babesiosis, mm-hmm. uh, there's Rocky Mountain spotted fever, tularemia, uh, anaplasma. Yeah. So there are another four or five other types of tick-borne diseases found here on the island. By far, the most common is babesiosis. And about 2 or 3% of the people that we have seen um, are infected with both right. Lyme and babesiosis because the ticks carry both. Here yeah. on the island, the last survey that we did, about 50, only about 50% of the ticks were actually infected with some sort of tick-borne disease. Now, if it were me, am I going to try to decide, is this one infected or not? <laughs> I'm just going to assume they all are. Yeah, they don't carry a sign, last I checked. Right. <laughs> so a lot of people said, well, should I have the tick tested? Well, you can, but... By the time you get that, you pay that money and get that result back, you probably should be taking treatment just in case. Right. Well, it's it's heartening to hear that out there that you're on top of this issue. It's in so many places. I mean, I'm just a, a hop, skipping, and jumping away in central New York, and and the vets are all over this. I mean, the vets have a sign up and said, "Oh, we've got 250 diagnoses of Lyme this year," and you walk down yeah. the street to the to the doc, and the doc says, "Yeah, well, we see one or two of these a year." And it's no, you miss, yeah. <laughs> you're missing a hundred of these a year. Yeah, they, you know, it's if you're not in a, which, you know, we always find really interesting if you're not in that endemic area, you know, here physicians are pretty good at going, whoop, okay, that's what it is. You know, yeah. they're just going to fall uh, and say, you know, we're just going to assume that's what it is. But I have a, personally have a friend of mine in Rhode Island who had a physician tell her, number one, he wasn't going to treat her, and she was co-infected with babesiosis, and he wasn't going to treat her for that either. Oh, my goodness. And I just said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> you better rethink that. <laughs> uh, I mean, that babesiosis is very dangerous. Yeah, it absolutely is. Now, how did she... I don't want you to re- reveal anything here, but how did she deal with it? Did she have... Did you call? Did... How did she fight through that resistance? So what I ended up doing, she asked me if she could teleconference me in with her physician. And we talked a little bit and I enlightened him, sent him some articles and some other information on websites and stuff. And she got her treatment. So he was appreciative. He just didn't know. Yeah, they're just blind. Yeah, yeah. Just didn't know that that's what he should be doing. Yeah, it's just insane. And here's my my last question to you is also from one of the listeners. And the question is, what other testing studies, promising avenues are out there that, that you know about? So 
One of the things that was probably um, one of the other studies we're involved in as well is uh, trying to help develop a actual uh, what's called a, a DNA test for the spirochete. Mm-hmm. We're providing uh, samples to a group actually in Stanford University. So our collaborations uh, are pretty far-reaching. Um, so we're working with one of the premier groups in Lyme research at Stanford University with a Dr. Bill Robinson who's trying to develop a, uh, like I said, a DNA test that can be used in blood. We have one now that can be used in cerebral spinal fluid. Right. And... Uh, but that has not worked successfully in blood, so he's trying to collect enough samples to uh, test out his, so we're providing him with that. Um, we have the, like I said, the T and the B cell. The other thing that we're involved with is what's called a biobank. There is a collaboration of several researchers um, under one roof who are trying to just collect samples to provide to anyone who wants to do research. Oh. So we draw, for anyone who's willing to, an extra tube that goes to this biobank where we provide, you know, simple background de-identified information about did they have a rash, did they not have a rash, when were they bitten, things like that, Mm -hmm. so that as people are looking for samples, um, they don't have to wait for the next tick season these samples are uh, frozen and stored uh, with their demographics, where they came from, et cetera, and are made available to anyone who's doing research, which would be huge. Yeah. Um, so if I was, I had a great idea for a test and got so far ahead and ready to test it, I'd go to the biobank, get a thousand so samples, and just go right so ahead. Many and see if it works. Yeah. Right? That's such a great so, idea. Um, that's yeah, so, and you know, there are lots of diseases that have uh, biobanks. There's uh, Alzheimer's disease, a tissue bank, yep. Parkinson's. It's a very, very common uh, thing to have, uh, but Lyme never had one. So we're starting with Lyme. We'll probably then go to other tick-borne disease because it would be nice to have that as well. As well for the others, um, yeah. But that's where we're going to start. So really, in some ways, what you're saying is and part of the, the lagging I'm going to say treatment for Lyme disease is the, just the the research infrastructure isn't even there to rapidly move forward. I and mean, we've kind of got to do, do things, quote unquote, the old fashioned way where you have to wait around for somebody to be tested positive and, you know, whatever the criteria right. are before oh, and somebody honestly, can even get going. Right. And honestly, because it happens really in, in high concentrations and really, if you think about it, relatively small areas of the U.S., right? It's not this huge. It's also not uh, communicable. In other words, I can't spread it to you. If it was spreadable, it would be a whole different story. I can see that. Gets right? people so very excited. Those are mumps or rubella or polio or you know any of those things. Um, I, there's a lot of underreporting going on. Uh, you know, mainly paperwork, et cetera, lack of awareness. So there's lots of things that we've touched on and why the CDC is finally now just catching up to say, wait a minute, um, there are way more cases than we thought there were. Yeah. Well, and thanks to your work. 
Well, like I said, you know, I wanted to be able to make uh, a difference here in the community, not just, you know, um, and be able to help the people who, you know, I live with day in and day out. And this is such a prevalent thing that um, if there was a way that uh, we could get involved, uh, you know, I, I wanted to participate. So that's where we're at. Great for you for stepping up. So. In closing, I, I lied. I have one more question here. So you're saying mm-hmm. 34 cases a week come through your clinic. Now, in terms of ranking diagnoses, where does that fall? You know, is it number 200? Is it number two? Oh, it's probably in this in this time of year yep. um, during the summer. It's got to be the most common uh, diagnosis we have. The next one we get is you know strep throat. Right. A lot of, you know, sinusitis, asthma. Sunburn. Stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, sunburns, rashes, other bites. Uh-huh. Uh, but it has to be by far the biggest thing that we see most yeah. of the summer. You know, and we actually will still see cases all the way through uh, once hunting season stops. Hunters seem to forget they're sitting in trees and walking around in leaves. Yeah. And, and the t- ticks don't, they have a two-year life cycle. Right. So they'll continue to feed. So you're seeing cases through November? Oh, yeah, easily in November, yeah. Yeah. I mean, not as many as we see now, but we'll see a couple a week. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, it is pretty amazing. And it's pretty simple, you know, to just spray yourself down with some deep, deep woods off, right? Or get permethrin impregnated. Uh, clothing and you're protected. Yeah, I was hosing down my socks the other day with permethrin and uh, feeling thankful it I had a bottle of it. Yeah, it works. It's actually pretty cheap too. You can find it on Amazon. What a bottle for what twelve bucks, six bucks, something yeah, like that. Yeah, we I got the uh, the horse version from Magway, which was about uh, a fifth of the cost of the human variety. So, right, you know, just to be careful, you don't want to get it directly on your skin, but yeah. you put it on your and let it dry, and you're good to go. Yeah. Well, Ms. Briscoe, you have been so generous with your time. I really appreciate the knowledge, and I just want to say thank you for the work you're doing because every community should have somebody like you and a clinic like you uh, where, where Lyme's endemic, and there would just be so much less suffering in the world. Um, so just thank, thank you, you so for much. taking care like of your from, corner. Well, uh, thank you so much. I mean, anytime, just give me a call. I really appreciate it. Is there anything else you'd like to say about how to get hold of your clinic or anything else you're doing personally for people to get in touch with you or not? Um, you know, they can just, uh, you know, we do have uh, walk-in uh, appointments. Somebody comes in, they think they've been bitten, just walk in. We'll take care of you. Yeah, and don't hesitate, right? Don't if, hesitate. If, don't even think, well, maybe I got bit, maybe I didn't. If you think you did, come in. We have doxycycline on site, and we can give it to you and treat you. All right, terrific. Thanks so much. Have a great day. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. There's some great information in there. It sounds like Dr. Prisco is really going to revolutionize how Lyme disease is being diagnosed over the next couple of years. Let's hope we're finally due for a decent test Yeah. and get away from the Western blot Lyme bingo, as Dr. Harwitz calls it. <laughs> 
In the meantime, if you do have a test done, see if you can't get your doctor to send it to Igenix. We're not trying to drum up business for them, but it's the most comprehensive test out there. They do use two strains of Borrelia as the standard to test against and measure. So there's a greater chance that if you've had a Borrelia that's a slightly different form than what the standard is, you will get a positive test, an accurate diagnosis. There's just a story coming out today. The Canadians are saying that we're giving false positive tests because we're actually detecting Borrelia that the other tests don't don't see. The CDC doesn't recognize. So it's, it's just such a big mess right now. And the last thing is Lyme is a clinical diagnosis. These tests are not designed to diagnose Lyme disease. And it's silly that we're even talking about it this way. We really shouldn't. It's really up to your doctor's experience and training in Lyme disease. And if you don't have an experienced doctor, go to the ILADS website and find a Lyme literate doctor. It's critical to your health. Yes, it is. And you were also talking, Aurora, mentioning when we were getting ready for this podcast. Yeah, how important it is to report your Lyme disease. Uh, something that Dr. Briscoe, Dr. Prisco was saying was that not enough people are reporting are reporting their diagnosis to the CDC, or they're leaving it up to their doctors, and then the doctors just. Pl- plain aren't doing it. So part of the underreporting that goes on with Lyme disease and the CDC is them simply not getting the information they need. Yeah, that's a really good point. So if you've been diagnosed with Lyme, next time you're at your doctor's, make sure he's filled out the little form that's needed and sent off to the CDC. You know, that can make a big difference just right there. Okay, yep. if you need more Lime Ninja in your life, visit our website, limeninjaradio.com. There you can find all 53 past episodes. We've archived all the episodes so you can get go back and listen to them again and again and again and again. And that's the best way to learn. The ninja way to learn is by repetition. You'll hear something new and deep in your understanding each time you listen. I know I do. On the website, you can also sign up for our Ninja Insider mailing list and pick up the Lime Ninja Brain Foot Brain Fog Protocol. As our thank you. We're recording this late at night, so please excuse all our stammering, <laughs> mispronunciations, and, and stutters. Yes, thank you for your forbearance. Yes. Lime Ninja Radio is also on iTunes, Stitcher, and Facebook. And lastly, your day would not be complete, let alone my day, unless we left you with the Lime Ninja fact of the day. Did you know that cats are allergic to ninjas? Lime Ninja Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized medical advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's medical situation is unique and Lime Ninja Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized medical advice. Lime Ninja Radio is not licensed to render medical advice and should be considered simply the public opinion of Lime Ninja Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific treatment options are not intended to address any listener's particular medical situation. As always, contact your physician before considering any new treatment.